you got a Bible handy, I'd like for you to turn to Matthew chapter 12, and we're going to be there for just a little bit and then move on, so don't get too comfortable in Matthew and start reading the whole chapter. But I'd like for you to turn there, and, and a lot of the scriptures that we'll look at today, you'll see on the screen behind me, so if your version is a little bit different, then you'll be able to follow along, or if you didn't bring a Bible, then no big deal. <clears throat> but... I'd like for us to look at this, and this will kind of give us a launching pad for not only this week, but for the next few weeks leading up to Easter. Jesus here, and we're just going to look at one part of one verse, and then we'll, then we'll move forward. Matthew chapter 12, <clears throat> I want you to look at verse 34. Jesus here is talking to the Pharisees, <coughs> excuse me, and he calls them a brood of vipers, and, and he, he's always got some pretty tough words for the Pharisees, the religious leaders of that day, because they were missing the mark completely and leading other people astray and away from what God really wanted them to do. And so, so when, when he says brood of vipers, this is a really strong term. And then he says, how can you speak good things when you were evil? And, and, and trust me, this hit them to their core because they, they considered themselves to be pure, not evil. And, and then the, the, the part of the verse that I really want us to focus on as our launching pad is this. Jesus says, For the mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. For the mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. What's in your heart, Jesus says, is coming out. It's going to come out through what you say and through what you do and, and, and through, through all of your actions in life. You can't hold it back forever. You ever tried? You ever been there? You've had something that's just kind of welling up inside of you, and you just say, you know, I'm, just, I'm not going to say it. I'm not going to say what I really think. I'm not going to say what I really feel. I'm not going to do what I really, really want to do in this situation. And you can hold it off for a while. You know, you can hold it off for a little while, and then some time goes by, and it just keeps building up. And, and eventually, eventually, if, if you don't take care of what's on the inside, it's coming out. And it may not be good. Now, I know none of us have ever had that situation here. I realize that I'm dealing with super spiritual and completely holy people. So I'm talking to myself. I understand. I realize I'm the only one that's ever dealt with this. But isn't it true that those folks out there somewhere in your family or your friends or where you work or whatever, don't you see it in them every once in a while? You just tell. They've been fighting it for a while. And all of a sudden, it just comes out, and it ain't pretty. You're quiet like it's happened to you before, isn't it? That's right. Yeah, isn't that the truth, boy? And all of us, golly, I wish that weren't true of me sometimes. That what's just wells up. I and mean, Jesus said, for, for the mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. I mean, get that picture in your mind of just sort of that inside of you. Boy, what's on the inside? Just It builds up, and there's a little bit more added to it a little bit more added to it, and you just, oh gosh, I don't want that to come out, and, and, and a little bit more, and all of a sudden, then it just overflows, and it starts to kind of well up inside of you, and then blah, here it comes, you know, it's just the way it is, and you, you talk about it, or you say that certain thing that you swore you'd never say, or you, you say that to that person that you love so much, but you just hurt them so bad because it welled up on the inside of you, or, or you do the very thing that you'd never want to do, and yet you think, where'd that come from? What came from inside of you? The devil didn't make you do it. You know, you can't blame it on anybody else, but what's overflowed inside of you, it comes out of your mouth. And so, good or bad, uh, what's inside of you is going to surface. Uh, we know those people, too, on the flip side of this, that well, what's on the inside of them is so, so godly and so loving 
And that, that when we're around them, it just overflows. It comes out of their mouth. Just love and, and, and encouragement, forgiveness, just a, an arm around you to help you get through life. You know people like that. I mean, isn't it great to be around people who there's some good stuff overflowing? It's not all bad stuff. And Jesus makes it clear that both the good and the bad is going to overflow. And, and what, whatever is in your heart is eventually going to come out. The truth is this, and this is sort of our our premise, I guess, for this whole new series called Overflow that we're going to talk about the next several weeks leading up to, and we'll complete this on Easter, uh, Easter Sunday. Uh, the truth is that, that what you say, think about this, and if, if I'm wrong, then, then I, I, would, I would say that I'd have to argue with you. But if I'm wrong about this, I, I doubt it. What, what you say really reveals what's in your heart and mind. Isn't that the truth? What you, I mean, think about it. It's just a universal truth. Uh, the Bible makes it clear that's true, but we wouldn't need a verse about this. We just know it. That, that what you say really reveals what's going on inside of you. You say what you think most of the time. You say what's in your heart. You sort of shoot from the hip, so to speak. And here, here we go. And what you say reveals what's going on inside your heart and in your mind, which, which reveals what's going on inside your heart and mind, reveals sort of the, the direction of your life. I mean, you think about it. What you set your mind and your heart on is where you're going. The Bible makes it clear even about the way we spend our money. Wherever your treasure is, that's where you're going to find your heart. That's, that's the direction of your life. And so what you say reveals what's in your heart and mind, which reveals the direction of your life, which then reveals where other people would go if they sort of walked closely with you through your life. I mean, think about it. What you talk about, I talk about sports a lot. That's just what I like. I like baseball in particular. It's what's in my heart and mind. That's what I've done for a long, long time. Love it. Love this time of year because baseball season's starting up. Enjoy it. Went to part of the Murray State game yesterday, and it's just the way it is. That's what's in my heart and my mind. And so if you come along and walk with me through life, you're probably going to be a part of a baseball game at some point. That's just the way it's going to be. I mean, think about it. it what, what you talk about is what's in your heart, what you really love. Mind. And if somebody were to join you and listen to what you say over time and, and sort of walk with you, they're going to be a part of those same activities. It, it sort of sets a direction for your life. And so here's, here's what we're going to look at for the next several weeks. That if, if we want to understand the direction God is going, His will, and, and specifically as it pertains to our lives, if we want to understand what does God want for me, what's His will for my life, that's a universal question, and I'm sure everybody has asked at some point or another whether you consider yourself to be a Christian or not. You thought, well, if there is a God, what does He want from me? If, if, if He really does exist, and I'm somehow accountable to Him, what's He want for me? And for those of us that may have given our lives to Jesus in the past, that's been a quest since then. What is, what's God's will for me? What does He want me to do? If we're going to determine that, then we have to determine what's his heart set on. What's he thinking about? What's inside of him? And as a result of that, if Jesus' words are true, that whatever's inside of God is going to well up and it's going to come out of his mouth, his words then will let us know about his heart, which lets us know about his will. And so we're going to look at the words that Jesus spoke. And as we look toward Easter, this you can consider this if you're wondering, are we going to do anything that, that has to do with Easter and that kind of stuff? Here it is, all right? Get ready, because the next couple of weeks, that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to look at, over the last week that Jesus lived before he was crucified, and then subsequently after that, after his resurrection, we're going to look at the words that he spoke. Now, I'm sure that many of you have 
heard lots and lots of sermons on the different events. And if you haven't heard lots and lots of sermons, you're probably at least a little bit familiar with the general events that happened during that time. Maybe you believe them, maybe you don't, but you may be at least familiar with... Here's what the Bible says, that Jesus was crucified on a cross and, and, and that the Bible makes it clear that that was for the purpose of, of fulfilling God's uh, will that we might be forgiven and be cleansed from our sins. And not only did He die for us, but He was resurrected to give us power over all of our sin and power over death. And because of His death and resurrection, we're, we're not held accountable anymore uh, we, for, the, for the penalty of our sin, which means that once we give our lives to Jesus, that He's paid that penalty. It's over. And, and so maybe you've heard that story before. And, and, and not that any of that is somehow unimportant because we're going to touch on all of the, the story of, of the crucifixion and the resurrection. But I want us to focus maybe on something that we haven't really thought about before. And that is, what was Jesus talking about? I mean, think about it. What would you, if you knew your time on earth was getting short, if you knew you just didn't have much time left, and Jesus knew... Uh, from the story we'll talk about today, within less than a week, he would be crucified. And then 40 days or so later, he'd go to be with God in heaven, and he would no longer physically be on earth. So he's got a month and a half. I mean, think about it. Put it in that perspective. It's middle of March. What if by May you knew, I'm done? For some of us, maybe you, you think that way a lot. I don't know. Maybe you keep life in that sort of perspective. Maybe you say, you know, I'm toward the end of my life, and I always think that way. Uh, for others of us, if you're more uh, maybe under the impression that you're invincible and going to live forever, maybe you don't think about that very often. That, that's, that's maybe not on your mind, but, but play along for just a second. Consider the fact that if you had a month and a half left, or if you knew somebody who did, what would you talk about? What would you be saying? I remember the last few conversations I had with my grandfather before he passed away. And sometimes I think, why, why was I talking about that? <laughs> what difference was that going to make? I didn't have much time left with him. I knew it was going to be short. And, and then I, other times I think, man, I'm glad you know, I had the chance to talk with him. That was good. I, I, I enjoyed that. But think about it. What, what if you knew your time was short? What would you talk about? What would be the things, the lessons you'd try to pass on to somebody? Or, or I guarantee you this, if you knew somebody who was was closing in on their time. They had a, a terminal disease or they just kept life in that sort of perspective and they knew their time was short. I mean, you'd listen to what they had to say, especially if it was somebody you respected, somebody who taught you something before. You'd really want to know, what is this person going to say? They, they have a short amount of time left. What are they going to say? I, I was reading a book this past week and and it, it highlighted uh, a fictional story, but at the same time, a story that rings true, I think. Fictional story of a, of a man who had passed away, and yet before he died, he recorded a series of videos based upon some lessons he wanted to pass on to one particular family member, a young man and his family who he thought there was still some hope for. Everybody else, he said, I think they're too far gone, but you, this young man, I want to teach you some lessons that I think will help you. And so before he died, he recorded... Twelve different lessons, different, different teachings that he wanted this young man and his family to know. I mean, think about it. What would your twelve lessons be? If, if, you, if you were recording, here's what I've learned in life, and here's what I want somebody else who there's still hope for, or here's what I want somebody else to learn, what would they be? I, I've, I've written down just a couple. I'm not going to read all twelve, but, but here are three of this guy's lessons that he, that he passed on. One, he said, in the end, a person is only known by the impact they have on others. 
In the end, a person is only known by the impact they have on others. Maybe that would be one of your lessons you'd teach somebody. You know, when it comes right down to it, it doesn't matter what you did for a living. It doesn't matter where you lived. It doesn't matter what you had. What matters is did you impact anybody else? Did you make a difference in anybody's life? That's what this guy said. Another one, he said, money is nothing more than a tool. It can be a force for good, a force for evil, or simply be idle. Now, some of us in, in the economy in which we live today, we're not sure we believe that. But this guy wanted to make sure he passed that along. Bear in mind that the story, this fictional story, was about this man who happened to be a billionaire. And he says money is nothing more than a tool. It can be used for good, it can be used for evil, or it can just sit there. It's nothing more than a tool. And then he said this, understand from his perspective, a very, very wealthy man. He said, it is a wealthy person indeed who calculates riches not in gold, but in friends. Some of us who are toward the latter part of life realize this is completely true. And we say, you know, I, I realize that I have spent a good portion of my life maybe trying to gain some wealth or whatever, but I realize when it comes down to it, I'm just, I'm just thankful for the people that I have in my life. And, and, and this guy passed that along. What would you say if you knew your time was short and you say, I've got just a little bit of time left to sort of cram in what I want everybody to know? If, if my time is short, here it is. Pay attention. I'm going to give you what I want you to know. I, I would imagine you'd have some pretty powerful things to say. And I would imagine if you knew somebody who was in that stage that you'd really listen because you'd say, you know what? I, I know that maybe their time is, I'm going to listen to them just a little bit, maybe more so than I, than I did before. As we look at the next couple of weeks, understand this, that Jesus knew his time was short. He was not caught off guard by the fact that he was arrested and crucified. That didn't surprise him whatsoever. He knew that was in God's plan. And he knew that as the time neared, he knew, here it is. Now is the time. So Jesus, when we read his words beginning today and then tonight and the next few weeks, keep that in the back of your mind. That he knew he didn't have much time left. That he knew his time with his disciples, those 12 guys he'd walked around with, and the other people there that he would come into contact with, he knew these were some of the last lessons he was going to teach. Now, before you think that some part of the Scripture is necessarily more important than others, that's not my point during this particular series. It's not my point to say, well, we better pay attention to this, because this is really important, because Jesus was talking about this at the end of his life. The entire Bible is inspired by God, is completely inerrant, it is completely relevant and practical, and is all the Word of God. So understand that, that, that there's nothing that makes one part necessarily more important. But understand this, that as we look toward the end of his life, there were some things Jesus wanted to make sure they got. You've got to get this. You've got to understand these lessons. And so uh, Jesus taught a lot, and even as his time is winding down, we'll discover that his words in those last days reveal what was on his heart, what was on his mind, uh, which, which then revealed what direction he was going, and, and will reveal to us the direction our lives will go if we walk with him closely. And so I'd like for you to turn, we're going to sort of camp out today in Mark chapter 11, and understand what has just happened. If, you, if you've got your Bible, you can turn there, and, and we'll, we'll focus on these scriptures in just a minute, starting in verse 15. But but understand what's just happened. Before we get to the Scripture, understand what's, what's just happened. That Jesus has just made his entry into Jerusalem. And they've celebrated him. And he's had this big sort of parade in his honor. And here he comes into 
uh, into Jerusalem, and, and he knows in a week these people are not going to be cheering me anymore. Instead, they're going to be calling for my crucifixion. They're going to kill me. And, and then verse 15, he says this, They came to Jerusalem, and he went into the temple complex and began to throw out those buying and selling in the temple. He overturned the money changers' tables and the chairs of those selling doves and would not permit anyone to carry goods to the temple complex. Then he began to teach them. Here are his words. It is, not, is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it into a den of thieves. Then the chief priests and the scribes heard it and started looking for a way to destroy him, for they were afraid of him because the whole crowd was astonished by his teaching. And Jesus had something to say during this time. Maybe this is a story that you've heard before. Maybe this is a story that you have heard preached before. Maybe it's one that you've never heard of at all. But I want us to focus primarily today on the words that Jesus spoke, which will reveal his heart, which then will reveal his will. If you've got your bulletin, you can flip that over and sort of follow along as we get to these different things. And for some of you, I realize it's helpful just to fill in a blank every once in a while. For some of you, you say, well, no big deal. But just in case you'd like to follow along, maybe refer to it later on. I've got that for you. So uh, here's, what I, here's what we'll do. We'll, we'll, we'll kind of break down what Jesus said, and then we'll wrap it up with what on earth does that mean, and does that even matter for us in, in 2009. But Jesus entered the, the temple, and, and <laughs> I, I don't know about you, but this isn't the picture of Jesus that we normally get. We normally get a picture of Jesus that's hanging on the wall of this very mild-mannered-looking Jewish man with long hair and a really nice beard. And I've often wondered, and I may be blasphemous in this, what if Jesus had hair like me, you know? Why does he have to have long, flowing, nice-looking hair? Why can't he be half-bald like me? You know, I've never understood that. And when, maybe, maybe I'll be surprised and I'll be impressed that Jesus, you know, had some bald spots and so on. But... You know, and, and what if Jesus was the guy who didn't have the full beard, but he was one of those guys that, you know, he had some patches in there. He couldn't quite grow it right. You know, I, we don't know anything about Jesus. But the picture we get is that full beard, long flowing hair, mild-mannered looking, just absolutely inviting and comforting picture of Jesus. Now, is there anything wrong with that? No, I don't think so. But at the same time, nobody really knows what Jesus looked like other than what the Bible describes. It said he wasn't anybody that was extraordinary in his good looks. He was just an average, normal-looking guy who nobody would pay any particular attention to, just the way that, that he was. And so when he enters the temple complex on this day, this mild-mannered picture of the guy with the full beard and the flowing hair hanging on your wall at home sort of changes. Because he walks in, and he goes off. I and mean, then picture Jesus, okay? If you've got a picture of him at home, picture him coming off the wall and, and looking crazy, all right? And swinging stuff around and throwing things all over your house. Not exactly the picture that you'd think of Jesus. But as we look at it, that's what he did in this particular passage of Scripture. He went off. He was angry. He's throwing things around everywhere. I mean, you'd, you'd think I had lost my mind if I came into the sanctuary one morning and I tipped over the table and I busted the pulpit all apart and then I started working on the piano. Some of you would tackle me by then, all right? But understand that the picture we got of Jesus in this particular passage is different. And, and it's not this meek, mild-mannered sort of, well, I'm going to go die for the sins of the world and I need to be all... All passive with it. Jesus was, he went crazy. 
Now, in, in all of this, we realize and know for sure that he never sinned because we'll understand his anger was directed toward something different than our anger is directed toward. What welled up inside of him was not some unrighteous anger because he had been hurt and now he's going to pay everybody back. That's, that's our anger. That wasn't his. His anger was directed at something that he needed to correct so that people could see God properly. And, and yet I just want you to sort of have in mind this picture of Jesus is a little bit different. And so when he utters these words, he's not sitting down in front of a bunch of children and people in this grassy field and it's peaceful and the wind's blowing a little bit and he's breaking fish and bread and feeding everybody and they're all bowing down. When he utters these words, he's screaming at them. He's yelling. He's probably in the middle of holding up a table and throwing it across the room and he says, my house is to be a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it into a den of thieves. Screaming at them. Let's look at what these words sort of mean for for what Jesus was saying. When he says, my house, understand that that's a symbol of God's presence. The temple was the symbol, the, the uh, sort of the place where God said, I will reside. The temple had been constructed years and years and years ago, first by Solomon, and then there were, uh, that one was destroyed, then there was another one built, and then the one that Jesus happens to walk into was one that had been updated not too long before that. But way over, and you don't have to turn to, to this passage, I just want to just read it to you very quickly. Way over in 1 Kings chapter 8, just write down the reference, in, in chapter 8 verse 10, Solomon is dedicating the temple, and he says this, When the priest came out of the holy place, the cloud filled the Lord's temple. And because of the cloud, the priests were not able to continue ministering. For the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Then Solomon said, The Lord said that he would dwell in thick darkness. But in, I indeed have built an exalted temple for you, a place for your dwelling forever. And then in 1 Kings chapter 9, verse 3, The Lord said to Solomon, I have heard your prayer and petition you have made before me. I have consecrated this temple you have built to put my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there at all times. The temple was constructed to be where God would, would hang out. It would be where he would live. It would be where folks could go and meet with him. It was a symbol of his presence. And so this was a big deal. This, this wasn't just some place where, you know, big, yeah, no big deal, it just doesn't matter. This was to the Jewish people and especially to God himself, the, the symbol of his earthly presence in their lives. And so when Jesus walks in and sees some things that are going on, it wasn't just something he could turn his head toward. It wasn't just something, eh, big deal, they just don't get it. This was a huge deal to him. The symbol of God's presence was important to Jesus. So he says, my house, and then he says, is to be a house of prayer. And in that, you, you, you'll see this there in your bulletin. There's nothing really to fill in. So if you like filling the blanks, you're freaking out at this point because there's not one on this one. But, but, but his, his house would be a house of prayer, which would symbolize and, and obviously connote uh, worship and devotion and seeking God's will. This would be a place where God's people could draw near to God and, and be close to Him and worship and then their sacrifices and, and their offerings. And they, they could, could seek His will and seek God's blessing. This would be where the, the Jewish people knew, I've got to go to the temple because that's where God is. I'm going to meet with God. I want to know what He wants for my life. So I'm going there. I'm going to pray. I'm going to spend some time in meditation. I'm going to praise. I'm going to worship God there at the temple. It was to be a house of prayer, worship, devotion, seeking God's will. And then he also said a house of prayer for all nations, which would include the Gentiles. Now that word is a Bible word you may or may not recognize, Gentiles. But, but basically that's just anyone who wasn't Jewish. 
Jewish people back then were, were, you were either a Jew or you were a Gentile. That's the way that is. And the Bible obviously includes that a lot. But it, would, it was to be for all nations. When Jesus says these things, he's quoting Scripture from Isaiah. And he says, uh, and the foreigners, Isaiah chapter 56, verse 6. Again, you don't have to turn there. I'll read it to you. And the foreigners who convert to the Lord minister to him, love the Lord's name, and are his servants. He's talking about non-Jewish people. All who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and hold firmly to my covenant, I will bring them, this is the Lord talking, I will bring them to my holy mountain and let them rejoice in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Jesus is quoting scripture from way back in the Old Testament. When Isaiah was, was relaying what God had said, and, and it was to be a house of prayer for all nations, including the Gentiles, uh, this wasn't going to be just for the Jews only. The priests didn't like that. Because they had arrived, so to speak. The folks leading what Jesus is so upset about were the church leaders. They were the guys who worked there in the temple. They were the ones who Jesus got angry at. And they, the Jews may have been God's chosen people, but the Bible makes it clear they missed the point of why they were chosen. And Jesus says, it's not just for you, it's for all nations. It's not just for the Jews, they had missed the point. And he says, but you have made it into a den of thieves. And maybe you've heard this before, and, and I, I want you to know that, that this, this is where... This is where it becomes difficult if, if you're a preacher. Because I could, I, I told my friend this this week. I said, you know, I said, at this point, here's where I could get off script, get away from what the scripture is actually saying, and just start beating us right here. Because if we say, you know what, my house is to be a house of prayer, but you've made it into a den of thieves. Well, here, here's where it comes. Am I going to, maybe I could play the role of Jesus. And you know, all the things that I, that I've discovered, you know, this isn't quite right. Maybe I don't like this. Maybe I don't. now's my time. You know what? You bunch of thieves. Here it is. Here's the way the church ought to work, and here's the way y'all are doing it. And this isn't right. And if you've heard a preacher preach that before, I want to apologize to you because that's not the point of the scripture. The point of the scripture is not for me to have pause to say, "Well, I've made my list of the way that we're operating like a den of thieves around here," and I'm going to tell you that this ain't right. And this ain't right, and we're going to do this different. And I'm telling you what, now, if y'all don't change, there's going to be some, some penalty from heaven. That's the way it is. If you've heard a, a sermon like that before on this particular passage of Scripture, I apologize. And I don't say that facetiously, because I believe that the Scripture teaches something completely different. Uh, and, and if you understand what it means, and I hope to help you understand what it means, you realize this isn't the opportunity for the pastor to get on his soapbox. This isn't the opportunity for the leaders of the church to say to the people of the church, well, you all are the thieves, and that's what the Scripture means. That's not what it means. When Jesus says that you've made it into a den of thieves, he, he really sort of highlights a few different things, one of which is that the people in the temple were taking advantage of the worshipers. This den of thieves reference highlights the fact, and this is really, this is really interesting. If, if you've not been paying attention till now, maybe, maybe look up or hit somebody if they're asleep. But, but here's, here's, here's something interesting. When Jesus says, you've made it into a den of thieves, right after he's tossed over all the tables for the money changers and all that stuff, what he's highlighting is this, that, that the Passover meal was, was going to be that week. And the, the Jewish people made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate this festival, this Passover feast. 
And what was required of them was two things. One, they had to have an animal for, for sacrifice. And two, they had to pay a temple tax. Now, follow this for just a second. In order to have the right kind of animal for the sacrifice, they had to either bring one with them or purchase one once they got to Jerusalem. Depending upon how far they traveled, it may be better to purchase one than to bring one. Not only that, but the animal had to be approved or considered appropriate not by anything other than the rule of the priest. Which means that, let's say, for example, that Bruce was a high priest during that time, which you can all imagine he would be perfectly qualified for that. And I were the pilgrim coming to Jerusalem, and I've got my animal with me, the lamb or whatever I'm bringing, and I have to go and I talk to Bruce and I say, all right, now here's the deal. I brought this, but I need you to check it over. Now understand that, that Bruce is, is sort of in on the deal, and he, not that this would be the case, but if he were the high priest during this time, that he's kind of in on the take. And, and he's in on, on, well, you know, these people are coming here, and we've kind of got them where we want them, so to speak, so if we sort of took advantage of them, what are they going to do? And so can you imagine how many animals were approved by the priest? Because... What Bruce knows that maybe I know too, but I don't like, is that if he doesn't allow that particular animal, he's got another one he'll sell me that's already been approved. Now, the other one costs ten times as much as the one I brought, but hey, I'll sell you one. And, and so that very rarely were the animals that, that the Israelites brought, very rarely were they approved by the priest. Because if they disapproved them, then they could make lots of money. Bruce would have been during that time a very wealthy man. The high priests and all the guys that worked for him were very wealthy because they had those pilgrims right where we want them. Have you ever been to a ball game and had to buy something from the, from the concession stand? You know what I'm talking about? Where else are you going to go? Because if you walk out of the stadium, they ain't letting you back in. And so you've got to buy that $5 Coke, $7 hot dog, that you go you know, up to the store or wherever and, and buy you know, a case of for the same price. I mean, the popcorn, it ain't but this big. It's 3 bucks. You know, you got a pretzel, and it's, you know, it's an extra dollar and a half if you want some cheese or mustard on that thing. You know, I mean, it's just, you've been to a ball game like that before? They got you right where they want you. Now, if you had a mom like mine, I mean, she brought all kinds of stuff in, you know. She was one of those ladies that her purse on, on game day was about this big, you know. And, and you know, and, and now, of course, they inspect all that stuff, and they probably wouldn't let her in with all that anymore. But, you know, that was the way it was. I mean, they, the, the priests had the people right where they wanted them. There was, what are they going to do? Not offer a sacrifice? Then they weren't right with God. And so the high priest and the guys working for him said, well, you know, let's, let's see what we can do. We'll make a little money on the deal. And that's exactly what they did. This coin that they had to pay the temple tax with was not just any change they had in their pocket. And Well, maybe it'll add up and get close. All right, that's good enough. It was a specific type of currency and only one particular coin from that currency. Most of the pilgrims traveling to the Passover didn't have it. They didn't carry that type of currency. And the priests knew this, and they weren't about to change it. So, so what they would do is if you brought your money, whatever you had, you could exchange it and get that particular temple coin, but they charge you 25% to do it. And so they not only made money by selling approved sacrifices, but they made money by changing the, the currency into what had to be paid for the temple tax. So these guys were constantly... On the take. I mean, you think about this percentage. I, 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 it drives me nuts when I ever I buy a ticket for a ball game and you got a five dollar handling fee. You know, I buy my stuff online. 
I mean, who's handling it? All it does is print it out, put it in the mail. Somebody has to stick it in an envelope and send it. They charge me $5 to do that. I mean, think about the indignity uh, that the, that the, 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 the uh, Jews would have felt when they, when they go and they say, well, you're going to charge me 25%, and all I'm going to do is give you this amount of money, you can give me a little coin. Yep. But what else are they going to do? The abuse, the taking advantage of the worshipers. Now, I realize that none of us have ever heard a story about anybody in the church abusing money. Never. I know that's never happened. You've never seen anybody on the news. Never heard of any story of, of a pastor or a church leader or anybody who's taking money from the church without anybody finding out about it, you know. And, 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 and I wonder, you know, as we obviously have heard several stories, I'm sure, through the years of people who have wrongly taken money from the church, I, I wonder this too. And I wonder if, if we draw a parallel here, not just directly from, well, this means that the church leaders shouldn't abuse the money of the church. Certainly that is the case, and, and we learn that. But I, I wonder how many pastors there are. And maybe this will mean nothing to you, but maybe if somebody listens to this recording sometime and they're a pastor, maybe it'll hit home. I wonder how many pastors there are who keep their church people unnecessarily dependent on them for spiritual growth. Follow me for just a second. My goal, and I want you to know this and, and hold me accountable, my goal is not to consolidate all of the spiritual knowledge and help within myself so that you have to keep coming back all the time to get more and more and more and more and more because I'm the only one who knows anything. I'm the only one who can make any sense of the Scripture. I'm the only one who can counsel you. I'm the only one who can do this or that for you. That's, that's the furthest thing from my mind. My goal is to make sure that each week, as best I can, that I put the Scripture in your hands as it just simply comes from God, flows through me to you in a way that you can understand it and then be dependent upon God Himself and Him alone for your spiritual growth. Amen. That's my goal each week. And so sometimes maybe it takes me a little while to get there and sometimes you leave thinking, what was that? But I want you to know that's the goal each week is to pass the Scripture on to you to be used by God in such a way that gets you standing on your feet or helps you keep standing on your feet so that you and the Holy Spirit and the Word of God throughout the rest of the week is what's being used to grow you spiritually, not so that next week you've got to come, oh, I've got to hear Pastor Brad, uh, what am I going to do? Church isn't happening until next Sunday and I'm falling apart. If that's happening in your life, let's talk a little bit. I'll help put some tools in your hand. Maybe you can then stand on your own because it is not. It is not healthy, nor is it ordained by God for me to be your primary means of spiritual growth. It's not. Now, am I here to be used by God in any way possible? Absolutely. I'm not trying to get out of any responsibility. That's not the issue. But I have seen so many times when people in the church depend only on their pastor, depend only on their deacons, depend only on their Sunday school teacher, their church leaders, and if they're not in contact with those people, their worlds crumble. I don't want that to be the case for anybody in this church. I want you to interact with the people maybe that God has put in roles of leadership in such a way that you then can stand on your own. And my goal each time that I try to counsel someone is to help them get to God and help them stand on their own. Am I there to help? Absolutely. Well, I continue to preach? Hopefully so. But at the same time, I don't want to be somebody who takes advantage of the worshipers by keeping you unnecessarily dependent on me. Secondly, this den of thieves, we're getting close to being done, so relax. I know some of you are getting hungry, ready for the brunch, all that stuff. We're getting there. You say, I came for brunch, not to listen to you talk forever. All right, we'll get there. 
not only was this taking advantage of worshipers, but it was also keeping the Gentiles out. It was keeping the Gentiles out. Jesus went crazy. And I think largely because of this. Think about this for just a second. If, if this building were the temple, and, it, and it's sort of structured, I suppose, rectangularly, how about that, for, for all intents and purposes, the same way that the, that the temple would have been structured. So if, if we walk to the back, and some of you are going to freak out because I'm going to be behind you, all right? I'm not going to throw anything at you. But if we walk to the back, and we were in the temple in Jerusalem, and they walked in, out here in the lobby would be primarily where the women could gather. And then if we walked in just a little bit further, then the men could go just a little bit further. And as we got up toward where the pulpit is, that would be called the holy place. And, and only the priests themselves could go up here. And as we got a little bit closer, maybe up into the baptistry behind all the curtains. Some of you always wondered what's up here. Now I'm finding out. And, and we, we go behind the curtains. That would be what they would call the most holy place or the holy of holies. So get that in your mind. There were these levels... Of, of holiness, so to speak. Certain places where only people could go. The high priest himself was the only one allowed into the Holy of Holies once a year. And once a year, he would go on behalf of all the people and offer a sacrifice for all of their sins. And so the temple was constructed that way. Outside the temple. They had gates on different sides and doors and so on. Outside the temple were where the Gentiles could hang out. The people who were not Jewish were not allowed to come inside. But right around, there were built these little porticos and walkways and different things, and, and that's where they could hang out. So sort of in the, the grass, the landscaping, the parking lot, if you kind of get that in your mind, that's where the Gentiles were allowed, and that's exactly where this business was taking place. Jesus walks up the parking lot, and he sees these things going on that are happening right out where the Gentiles were supposed to be praying where the people who were on the outside, so to speak, were invited to come and worship God. And this is where people were being taken advantage of, where extortion was going on, where there was a lot of noise, a lot of smelliness because of the animals. It, it became just a common marketplace. And Jesus says, hold on just a second. You have got people who don't yet know God, who are coming to worship Him, and you're conducting business in such a way out here, there's no way. How could somebody pray in the midst of all that noise? How could somebody be reverent toward God? How could somebody see or hear from God out there in the midst of all that? And Jesus, that's where, on the outside of the temple, in an effort to let the Gentiles in, where Jesus goes off. It was almost as if the Jews were saying, you know what, yeah, God's presence is here, but we don't want you here. You stay out. God's invited, we're invited, but not you. You ever been a part of a church like that? You ever been a part of a, a group like that that says, you know what, we enjoy the presence of God. Boy, He's good, but, you know, we're not sure we want anybody else to be involved. And Jesus went crazy on that particular line of thinking. Everything we do, understand this, everything we do both individually and collectively, Everything we do says something about our desire to see others come to God. Everything we do. And I, and I mean that very practically here at church even. The, the, the way that we talk to somebody in the parking lot. The way that we live our lives out in the community. Who we shake hands with here at church. Every single thing we do says something about our desire to see others come to God. Whether we want to see others come to God or whether we say, you know what? God's good for me and us, but not for you. It says something about us. 
Jesus, in his words and his demonstration of anger, said something about, you know what? You need to open the doors. You need to let those people come and worship God. Don't get in their way. Not only was it keeping the Gentiles out, but it also was a symbol of resistance against Rome. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but it's very interesting to, to learn this. And I, I hope that, that many of you will take and, and study the Bible in maybe a little bit deeper way, because there's, there's lots of interesting stuff. And, and I could, could unfold this for a while, and I'm not going to. But understand this, very briefly, the Jews were oppressed by the Romans. They were under Roman control, and so they had to do whatever the Romans told them to do, which was very demeaning to the Jews because historically they had been a nation. They had been a people that were independent. And so they didn't like it that somebody else was telling them what to do. And so there were revolts that were possible at any, at any time. In fact, there was a garrison of Roman soldiers kept right next to the temple for that very purpose because the Jews were, were, had the reputation that, you know what, they could revolt at any time. We've got to have some soldiers ready to put down the rebellion. When Jesus used this word thieves, he used the word that was common at the time to describe these, these, revolution, these revolutionaries, these, these nationalist rebels he uses a term that would be used if, if you were a person on the inside, you're going to resist Rome, you're going to, you're going to rebel against them. This word thieves in, in the, the Aramaic that Jesus actually used would have been used to describe those people. So when Jesus says that this is a den of thieves, not only is he talking about the business that was taking place and the fact that Gentiles couldn't get in, but he was saying, look, this is not to be you against the world. This is not to be Israel against Rome. This is not to be your fortress and your place of safety that you can come and nobody's going to touch you, nobody's going to bother you. He said, no, this is to be God's house, His presence, to shine in such a way that the nations would want to be a part of what God is doing, not so that Israel could say, stay out, we're going to resist, we're going to rise up. It was not a fortress to keep them safe and keep the nations out. It was to be, uh, instead of a symbol of God's presence for the nations. So those are His words. Those are his words and what he said, which reveals his heart. And get this, get this down. His heart was this. What's behind his words, what, what's welling up, what's overflowing, is this, that God's presence demands holiness, reverence, and devotion. God's presence demands holiness, reverence, and devotion. They were degrading and desecrating the house of God, which symbolized his presence God's presence has always demanded holiness, reverence, and devotions. And God's purpose has always been evangelism. It has always been evangelism. It's not us against the world. It's us for the world. It's not us completely protected from the world or isolated from it. It's us out in the world having an impact leading people to God. And you say, okay, well, that's great. They're talking about the temple, which means that it's got to be this church building, which means maybe all of the stuff that you're talking about is up to the pastor, the deacons, all the church leadership. Maybe that's where it's at. I want you to to look at at this quickly. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We'll close in just a second with this. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16. If you think maybe it's up to somebody else, Maybe it's not me. Maybe it's the people who actually work for the church. Paul says this, And what agreement does God's sanctuary or His temple have with idols? For we are the sanctuary of the living God. As God said, I will dwell among them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they will be 
my people. It says, for we are the sanctuary or the temple of the living God, where once there was a building that symbolized God's presence, where once there was a place of central worship that people had to come to in order to encounter God, Jesus changed all of that, and then the Holy Spirit came, and Paul says, we now are the temple of God. And since you are the temple of God, since you and I as individuals, since this building is not the temple of of God, as great as it may be, as lovely as it may be, and as thankful as I am to have a place to come to worship God, understand that when Jesus died on the cross and the veil of the temple was torn in two, it meant now we have God inside of us. Since that is true, since that is true, your life must reflect the demands of His presence and His purpose. My life must reflect the demands of God's presence and God's purpose. I can't say, well, that's only to happen at church. The temple has changed. It went from a building to a person. It went from some structure to my heart. I am now, you are now, the sanctuary, the temple of God. And so the good news and the bad news is this. God's presence isn't just a church. Some of us say, well, I'm going to go to church to be with God. Well, that's good. We're glad you're here, and I hope you experience God here. But if you are a believer and a follower of Jesus Christ, understand that God's presence isn't just a church. He lives in you. And as a result, He goes wherever you go. And as a result, He sort of kind of goes along, and you take Him with you whatever you're doing. That's the way that it is. And as a result, then, since God's presence is not just left here at church when we walk out of the doors, and He resides inside of you, as a result of that, that the the demand for a life reflecting His presence and His promise never ends. When we close the doors and turn out the lights, and when we go back to our homes, the demand that we reflect God's presence and His purpose, it doesn't go away. And that's good news, because we have access to God no matter where we are. You don't have to be at church to talk to God. You don't have to be at church to learn about God. You don't have to be at church to connect with Him. But at the same time, as they call it bad news, the challenging news is this, that you don't get to turn the switch off once you leave. I can't flip the switch and say, well, I'm not at church, I'm not in my pastor role anymore, so I don't have to be a Christian. I don't have to reflect the presence and the, and the purpose of God. The demand for holiness, for reverence, for devotion, for evangelism never ends. I want to close with this particular passage of Scripture, Matthew chapter 21. This is the end of this particular story. You may say, well, okay, great. That's, that's great. What, what difference does all this stuff make? Look at verse 14 of Matthew chapter 21. Jesus says, or, or the Scripture records it right after Jesus said, you, you, my house will be a house of prayer, but you're making a den of thieves. Right after he cleans house. It says in verse 14 of Matthew chapter 21, a continuation of the story. He says, the blind and the lame came to him in the temple complex, and he healed them. When the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonders that he did and the children in the temple complex cheering Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these children are saying? Yes, Jesus told them. Have you never read? You have prepared praise from the mouth of children and nursing infants. Then he left them and went out of the city to Bethany and spent the night there. The result of Jesus cleaning house in the temple was that ministry got done that people who needed to be touched by Him were then touched and healed, that He cleared out every obstacle in the way of people who maybe didn't believe before then. And He said, come on, 
Come on to me. Real ministry got done as a result of Jesus' cleaning house. Lives were changed. Those who didn't normally, uh, were not normally allowed, those children, praised Him. Think about it this way. Those words that we just looked at were some of the last that Jesus said while He was here on earth. And obviously they still ring true today. If he said those toward the end of his life, we obviously need to pay attention to them as lessons he wants us to be sure to get. And so, if he entered your temple today, if he saw directly to your heart the very dwelling place of God, if you have placed your trust in Jesus Christ, if he saw that, which he does, what would he do? If he looked into my temple today, what would he do? What would he say? Would I have to write that he overturned all the tables? That he screamed at me? Because my temple wasn't exactly full of devotion and reverence? Wasn't, wasn't directed toward reaching other people for God? What, what would he say? I would encourage you as I am learning myself and, and challenging myself to do, to let God clean house. Let Jesus clean up the house. And I'm not just talking about the house here known as this building of Elm Grove Church. I'm talking about the temple of Jesus Christ, which is each one of us. Let Him clean house. And as a result, He'll make you ready for the ministry He's got for you. He'll make you ready for what He wants you to do next. After He cleaned out the temple, the sick, the blind, the lame, they came to Him, the children came to Him. Ministry happened. People's lives were changed, but it first started with God cleaning out the temple. You want your life to count. You want your life to matter for Jesus Christ. You want it to make a difference in any way. Let Him clean house. Some things may be revealed that aren't really pretty, but let Him clean house. And I realize today that some of us would say, well, you know, I don't even know where to start. Are you kidding me? I've got so much junk in, in my temple, you don't even know. For some of us, for some of us, we need to start where Jesus said it all starts, and that's by first coming to Him. You can't get to God without going through Jesus Christ. And you cannot be forgiven of your sins without somebody paying the price for those. Jesus paid that ultimate price on the cross. And so if you find yourself here today saying, you know, I don't even know if I understand this whole Jesus thing to begin with, maybe your first step would be, you know what? I just want Jesus in my life. I'll let him clean up whatever he wants to. I just, want, I just want some hope. I just want assurance of salvation. I want to know that when I die, I'm going to heaven. Maybe that's where you need to start today. For others, young, old, or in between, maybe we just need to say, you know what, God, I don't know what junk's in there. I don't know what you'd say if you entered my temple today, but come on in. Clean house. Make me who you want me to be. And I'll fulfill the ministry that you've given me. And Jesus' words at the end of his life were powerful and important. I hope we pay attention to them. We'll look again over the next couple of weeks at other things he said, which reveal his heart, which reveal ultimately his will for us. Let's stand together. We'll close in prayer. and Then we'll close with a song, and then we'll eat. And we'll all be happy after that. Let's pray together. God, Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your words for what they teach us, for how they challenge us. God, I pray today that we would live lives that reflect the demands of your presence, that we would live lives of devotion, of reverence toward you.
of holiness. God, thank you that even in unholy people, you have chosen to take up residence inside of us. That doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever. Why on earth you would want to live inside this sinful man? But God, I thank you for it. So God, may as a result, may our lives then reflect your demands. That because we contain the very presence of God, that we would live lives worthy of that. Not trying to earn your love, but just simply reflecting who you are. So that we can then fulfill your purpose of evangelism. Of letting others know how great you are. And how incredible life is in a relationship with Jesus Christ. God, make us those kind of people. Lord, today as we eat and as we talk and as we have a good time, remind us over and over of the words you said. May this church, individually, collectively, as a building, the whole deal, be a church that others are welcome in. Where we have open arms to those folks just like the Gentiles that Jesus was so concerned with. Help us, Lord, today as we leave here. In Jesus' name, amen.